This is Aliens and Artists, Episode 11, Part 1 of our talk with J.F. Martell. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. J.F. Martell is a filmmaker, author, and philosopher. Along with Phil Ford, he's also the host of the podcast Weird Studies, a brilliant series on the diaphanous depths and strange heights of human experience. J.F. is author of the book Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice. We begin our conversation with a mass UFO sighting he had in seventh grade. I consider it one of the most captivating UFO experiences I've ever heard. So when I was in grade seven, as we say in Canada, I think in the U.S. you say seventh grade. I've just that's just something I've noticed. In grade seven, I uh, my class we did a, like a like a, an exchange with kids in New Brunswick. So I was growing up in Ottawa, which is uh, near Montreal, basically. So, um, and so for one week, these kids came from New Brunswick and kind of like lived with us and went to school with us. And then later on in the year, we went to Buktush, which is this small Acadian community on the Atlantic coast there in New Brunswick for a week. And, um, and uh, the incident happened on the way back from that part of the trip. When we went over there, we were just, we were between Montreal and Ottawa. Uh, It was nighttime and we were all on a, it was actually a, like a Greyhound that they'd rented for the trip. Um, so the bus was just us, just my a few classes and our instructors. And, and we're almost home, basically. And, um, and I was looking outside. I was just kind of sitting there, kind of dozing off, I believe, or, and looking out uh, outside. And um, because of the reflection on the glass, I remember I had to kind of cut my hands to see the forest that we were driving through. Um, and I was, this is the weird thing. And this is the part that discredits me from the beginning is I was actually looking for UFOs, but in my defense, I was always looking for UFOs as a kid. So whenever I was in a car traveling somewhere, especially at night, I was looking up and waiting to see a flying saucer. And so I guess that makes my uh, initial skepticism understandable because I suddenly saw hovering above the trees, I'd say about, I don't know, 300 yards from the, from the, the bus, a saucer shaped craft hovering just above the tree line below the clouds. And there was low cloud cover. I remember it was like a really stormy looking evening. And, um, and I looked at it, 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 it was, it was, uh, I say saucer shaped. Um, actually, what it looked like were two uh, separate lights orbiting each other, kind of revolving around each other. One was kind of orangey red and the other one was green. It's kind of this Christmas feel to it. And uh, so this, this craft was just flying uh, parallel to the bus. And, um, and I, I cut my hands to make sure I wasn't seeing some kind of reflection on the glass. Uh, and I could still see it. And I thought, I can't believe I'm seeing this. And then I turned to my, uh, it wasn't even a friend of mine. I was just this, this other kid in my class. He was a bit of a jock. We didn't hang out too often, but I turned to him and he was looking at me saying, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And then of course the entire bus within a few seconds was looking at this thing. So I guess about 
I, I remember be immediately seeing about a dozen other kids looking at it and pointing. And I remember my teacher, Gary, he was a nice guy. He was this uh, young teacher. I think this is probably his first class ever. He was, he must've been like 23 or something, this guy. He stands up and he's trying to figure out what we're looking at. And I looked at him and I said, look, there's a flying saucer. Look, there's a UFO outside. And he wouldn't look. He just kept looking at me. And and he just kept, he kept shaking his head like he was wondering what I was saying, almost like he couldn't understand what I was saying. I was saying, it's a UFO. In French, it's ovni is we, what we say in French. Ovni, objet volant non identifié, which is the same thing, unidentified flying object. I kept saying, there's one of those right there. And he just wouldn't look. So I kept looking. I remember this girl in the seat behind me. She was my first kiss, this girl, actually, at a school dance. She was sitting in the other seat, and she just started to cry. Like, she was panicking. Uh, and I kept looking at it, and suddenly it just it made a few weird maneuvers, like went up, down. And I remember as it went up closer to the clouds, it, it actually lit up the underside of the clouds. I'll never forget that. And um, so that's why I had a, I have to this day a strong feeling that I can only describe this thing as a physical craft, not some kind of, it was something there lighting up the clouds. And then suddenly it just swooshed right into the clouds and disappeared from view. And that was it. That was my, that was my first, um, in, my first UFO sighting. Yeah. That was, I can tell you, that was 19... Um, 1989, the spring of 1989. And interestingly, um, because this happened in the Ottawa area, um, I later did some research to know whether other similar craft were seen. Or actually, no. I think I actually I was watching Unsolved Mysteries around maybe a couple of years after this happened. And they reported, they did a, a segment on a sighting that had happened in Carp, Ontario, which is really close to Ottawa, where the ship had actually landed. And it was, they showed a video. You can actually still find this video online. And it's, sure enough, it's orange and green. It's like orangey, red and green. It's the same craft that I saw. Um, and, but it didn't happen at the same time. I think this sighting was uh, several years before uh, I saw mine. This is truly one of my favorite UFO stories of all time. There's three major reasons. This thing yields a lot of great material. To begin with, I actually love the fact that you were looking to see a UFO. Mm -hmm. You had this intention and desire, and that it had existed previously. And it came to fruition in this particular sighting so dramatically. Yeah. I mean, plain and simple, this is a mass sighting by school children. Right. Actually, it reminds me of these other events that you may have some familiarity with, including the aerial school sighting in which dozens of kids on a playground in broad daylight in Zimbabwe had this contact and encounter with entities. Mm -hmm. John Mack investigated that. There was also the Westall sighting in Australia, another mass sighting by school kids. Here in your experience, you have this bus full of children all reacting so dramatically, including this girl losing it, starting to cry inexplicably, which makes sense in a raw, primordial, emotional sense. Yeah. yeah. And the best part, almost the coup de grace, is the teacher who refuses to look, even yeah. though a school bus full of kids are losing <laughs> their minds. He won't look. 
He never looked. As far as I know, he never actually looked. To me, it's a microcosm of Western culture writ large, including the generational aspect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, what do you make of this reflecting back decades later? Well, I'm still, I still get a thrill out of remembering it. In fact, a few years ago, I, I'm not in contact with many of those kids anymore. Uh, I'm not on Facebook, so I don't have them all as friends as I did a few years ago, even though I would never write them a message because our paths have parted. Uh, there is one, one person who was sitting next or just across the aisle from me. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, I sat down with him about five or six years ago, and we went, we went through the experience beat by beat to make sure that I hadn't embellished it so much in my mind, being a believer myself and given what I do and what I write about, I wanted to get his take on it. And he describes it pretty much the same way as I do. He saw the same thing. So I still think of it as we saw a, hmm, we saw some kind of spacecraft using the word in the widest possible sense. We saw we saw what we saw. And I feel on some level, we saw something. I think we're all a little bit in my position. I think we're all kind of waiting for something to astonish us in life. But at the same time, we're also afraid of being astonished. So I think that when something like that suddenly reveals itself, makes itself present, there's the instinct to look and the instinct to turn away. And I think that's just that was just played out microcosmically in this moment. My teacher knew what we were seeing because he was hearing what we were saying, but he didn't want to see it. I don't look at it as though our participation affected the event. I, I think of it just as we happened to be there when this thing flew past. I don't think of it as my intention to see one somehow generated the experience or that there is a kind of um, a direct psychic connection between these things and us and that, that even though I think that's true on another level, mm -hmm. I think that we just happen to be at the right place at the right time. That's how I feel about it. Really the right place at the right time because almost no one lives in Canada. So the, li <laughs> exactly. the likelihood... Like those, that's the only school in Canada. The other element that I just love is the girl who lost it was your first kiss. She was your first kiss. There's this theatrical, mm -hmm. I know it wasn't scripted, but you have to hand it to whatever is creating the arc of our lives. Yes. <laughs> that girl who became so discombobulated was also your first kiss. Yeah. What, if anything, does that component say? Well, it just points to the weirdness of, I mean, this is all, of course, looking at the event from my personal perspective. So I, I do believe I was the first to spot it. So I'll give the idealist who wants to um, wrap this event in a kind of like, um, uh, how's the, what, there's a word I'm looking for, this participation. Uh, participatory kind of veil. If you want to look at this event as something that I was involved in generating, that you've got a lot of, of fodder here to work with. You've got a lot. Because, I mean, yes, there was the girl behind me who was my first kiss. Mm -hmm. I was looking for UFOs. I saw UFO. My teacher wouldn't look. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I was the first to see it. All these things combined make it look like this little drama involved me personally. And I think it does synchronistically. I think that uh, 
it does. And it maybe it involved other kids in other ways. And maybe some of these kids have don't even remember it happening. I don't know. But yeah, I, I can't help but I, I mean, I never even brought up the fact that that girl was my first kiss until this time around when I've just told the story. Mm-hmm. But now that you mention it, yeah, that is kind of weird. Yeah. It's weird. It's also, it's not quite archetypal, but I think one of the reasons I have such a strong emotional reaction to that dynamic of, let's just call it a couple, will bracket this with the understanding that you were kids, of course, but right. what happens oftentimes in relationships is one member of a couple has a profound anomalous experience and the other member of the couple does not share the enthusiasm or interest. In fact, would like very much for that experience to go away or to not have happened at all <laughs> so that a return to conventional reality could happen quickly. Resume, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the two of you formed this analog to that thing that happens in so many relationships around non-ordinary experience. Yeah, yeah. And I have a big surprise for you, JF. I have her on the line now. Let's bring her in <laughs> for a big reunion. Oh, God. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine? Oh, that would be fantastic. Have you ever, I know you wouldn't, but I... I would be so curious to talk to that woman today. Yeah, I, I've thought of it. But the thing is that um, she was my first kiss at a dance. I mean, we didn't even date or we weren't like boyfriend and girlfriend or anything. We just uh, she was just a, a very um, she was very ready to kiss boys. <laughs> this girl and she just Ooh, like we, she asked me to slow dance or I asked her. And then next thing you know, I was getting my first uh, French kiss, which was very awkward. And I remember we were slowly, we we're dancing to like, I don't know, something from 1989, <laughs> you know, uh, rock set maybe. Or, and, uh, I remember I had my eyes wide open as I'm kissing this girl and my friends were like giving me these thumbs, thumbs up in the background. It was pretty, pretty classic, class, classic eighties situation. So I, I would, I don't know if we didn't really have much of a bond beside that, but I would love to talk to her about it and see what she thinks happened that night. It was very strange. It begs this question around the kiss you described happened after or before the UFO sighting before, before. Yeah. See, it makes me wonder about the way in which the great unseen intelligence of our life, individual subconscious, also the collective unconscious, right? the decisions we make, which profoundly inform and to a degree determine the experiences we're going to have. Part of me wonders if some deep recess of this girl's being selected you for that kiss with her subconscious knowing that attending to JF's being were the potentialities of life-changing events, real strange stuff. Right. We can never know that, but I think it's fair to wonder, you know, <laughs> like you could see that scene reenacted so easily on any paranormal TV show. Yeah, 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 it's true. It's so it's so true and the more I think of it now that you're bringing all this up, the more I see that there was a very clear kind of like dramatic component to the whole thing. The way all the pieces fit together, at least in the way that I'm reporting it to myself, is pretty uncanny. Yeah. If we can go from there to more generally the milestones of your life in the non-ordinary, uh, what's that been like? Mm-hmm. How does that experience sit among whatever else has happened? 
um, mm-hmm. the kind of experiences that your life has been characterized by. Can you walk us through a general timeline of the rest of your life? Right. Um, well, as I as I was preparing for this, because you sent me an email before hinting that, and I've listened to other episodes, and I I, fuck, I love this show, by the way. I think it's such a brilliant idea. I'm so glad you're doing this. Um, I started to try to map out various incidents, encounters, and stuff that I've that I've had. And, you know, whereas with some people, there's a clear through line kind of connecting these things together. And there's a, a progressively revelatory energy to what they've lived. So you can see that slowly something's unfolding and revealing itself. Me, it just feels like I, it just feels like a mess. You know, <laughs> like I've got, I've had all kinds of weird encounters and it started very early for me. Um mm. Phil, my co-host on Weird Studies, always says that he always says that I was born with a foot in the weird, and I think there's some truth to that because not only because I've seen a lot of weird stuff, but because I've always attributed a lot of importance to the weird stuff that I, I've always wanted to. I don't know. I think I was born a little bit, even when I was a little kid. I just felt like I was already a kind of like parapsychologists trying to prove that these things were real to people. I don't know what it is. It's, I was just born a, believe, a believer in these things, and but also a skeptic yeah. and having needing the experiences to confirm that, that I, that I, that what I believed was the case, at least not, not what I believed specifically, but that I believed that certain things were possible to know that that reality was actually that expansive, verifying that experiencing that has always been kind of a thing for me. Mm-hmm. So I remember like early stuff. One of my earliest memories was uh, I went camping with my neighbor, my first close friend who wasn't my brother, I guess, was our our neighbor. She, her name was Christine. She was this little girl. She was my age, and I went camping with her family. Her dad was her dad was a firefighter, and we went uh, just camping for a couple of days out on a lake somewhere. And I just have a few memories of this trip. I was very young. I think maybe I went there. I'm trying to remember what would have brought my parents to send me off camping with them at that young age. But anyways, I was my parents weren't there. And so we were sleeping in a um, in a big tent, and I woke up in the morning, and of course I'm four, so I have no idea where I am. Like uh, I'm totally this, the reason why this memory is so vivid to me is probably because it was it was it was probably the first time I was away from my mother ever. I was lying in the tent, and I looked, and I saw my my friend and her parents sleeping there in the tent, but they were they had all transformed into uh, primates. Whoa! They were all like. <laughs> Sasquatches. Yeah. So there was the the dad and the mom and and their daughter all and they looked like like a Sasquatch, like the way you picture a Sasquatch look. They were furry and and I just looked at them and I sat up and I I kept staring and I was wondering, you know, even at that age I was like this can't be real. And then slowly I saw them transform back into <sighs> resume their human shapes. <laughs> And of course, you could say, well, that's a hypnagogic experience. And it is, but I just don't make a huge, clear distinction between dreamlike events and actual. As we know, as as you know, the more you look into these things, the more the boundary between the physical and the imaginal kind of starts to dissipate. So I I include it because it really affected me, this experience. And then that was, so that'd be the earliest one. And then there were all kinds of things. There was one night uh, we were living in a 
like positively haunted house. <laughs> I grew up, we lived in two houses that I think could qualify as like officially bonafide haunted. Yeah. Uh, the first one was the house my mother was actually born and raised in that she repurchased at some point when I was a kid. And we lived there for a few years. And um, while I was there one night, I was awake, couldn't sleep. And I went into my brother's room to grab a comic book and his, he had a window facing the street in front of the house. And as I just happened to look out the window, I saw this huge house cat just run across the street towards our house. It was like a big gray cat. It was like the size of a lynx, you know, like a too big to be a normal domestic cat. And then I went back into my room and sat on my bed and started reading my comic book. And from my bedroom, I could see the stairs coming up to the second floor, right? I could see the top of the stairs. And I see this something, someone's coming up the stairs. And I start, I'm like just staring. Mm -hmm. And then I see this cat head. And then I see this woman's body. It was like this woman with like, you know, she was she had all the proportions of a woman, but covered in gray cat fur with this giant cat head and these glowing green eyes. And she came into my room and kind of reached out for me. And then, of course, that's where the memory ends. And so, again, a dream, but also Bastet, you know, the Egyptian cat goddess in the flesh in my room. So that was another thing that really affected me. And, and it goes on from there, little things like that. But I, I can't really link them all together. I had some real uh, sleep paralysis experiences in the house we moved into after that. So at this point, I must have been about 16 or 17 when these started. I had the room at the back of the house. And that room, uh, this house was a, it's a beautiful kind of a mid-century modern house that abutted kind of a, a forest in my hometown of Vanier, which is actually a part of Ottawa. It's a little Francophone community here. It's a really cool, very Lovecraftian part of Ottawa. Yeah. So we lived on top of this hill and the hill is dominated by a cemetery and a grove of trees and an old abandoned, not abandoned, but uh, a defunct or former monasteries there too. So we're living up there on this hill and our house was just up against the woods, very close to the cemetery. The room I was in was in the corner of the house and that was the room that was closest to the woods. Um, I don't know why I say this. It just seems important. Because sometimes when people slept in that room at the back, something would slip in through the window and climb onto them while they were sleeping and wake them up. And I say this, and this is an experience I had several times. The one time that I remember most clearly, I had just lain down to go to sleep. I just like put my book on the bedside table, turned the light off, and immediately I see this like this black shape just coming through the window, whoop, like just land in the corner of the room. And I'm looking at it and I'm seeing some kind of creature crouched in the corner of the room, um, small. And of course I'm paralyzed. So I, at this point it's officially like a sleep paralysis uh, incident that I had, Great. even though I don't remember falling asleep. And this thing climbed onto me and I remember it's little talons grabbing onto my legs as it climbs onto my chest and it starts to do the thing that these Lamia, they're called sometimes, these sleep paralysis. I don't know if we need some backgrounder or like uh, on what sleep paralysis is. It's a very common occurrence where people wake up in the middle of the night, can't move, and often the experience is accompanied by the, the feeling that there's something present in the room and often something that climbs onto the person and kind of like uh, tries to, to suffocate them or, or take something from them or vampirize them. That's exactly what happened to me. And I could feel this thing on me. And I remember using a, a kind of like a, something that I'd learned 
some kind of Buddhist trick for like uh, shooing away uh, evil spirits, which is to tell them that they're loved and to like wrap yourself in this golden. I don't know if it's actually Buddhist or somebody had taught me this or I'd gotten from gotten it from a new age book or something. But I did this this technique and I finally managed to sit up. And of course, at that moment, the thing had vanished. But the, the interesting thing is that my brother also had the same experience in that room afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then I had a friend over and this friend is, uh, uh, he was, he was a strange dude. He's a fantastic painter. Anyways, he, he was staying with us for a few days at one point when I was just starting university, he had the same, I never told him this experience and he had the same experience in the same room of this thing sitting on his back and just pushing down on him. So considering that kind of correlation, I choose to believe that there's more to it than just sleep paralysis, whatever that even means anyways. Uh, when psychologists talk about sleep paralysis, I don't even know exactly what they, what they mean they mean, you know, what they, what they think they mean. Um, yeah. Well, one interesting facet of that experience you just related, I had this image of a hockey player when you were describing that deke move that you use. Instead of becoming apoplectic with fear you express love to this entity is that something you only used one time or is that a weapon you kept in your back pocket for a variety of these sketchy liminal neighborhoods it's something i've used many times actually um including when i was uh when i drank ayahuasca i used it because on ayahuasca of course you encounter some all kinds of entities not all of of which are feel well-intentioned. So it's something, yeah, something I've experienced, I've used quite a bit as a technique. It's mostly the golden light that does it for me, less so the telling the thing that they're loved, although that, that's part of it, I do it, but what feels most effective for me is the just visualizing this kind of golden um, sphere. It sounds silly, but it works. And the sphere, I guess this golden sphere is itself made out of a kind of love or a kind of agape, a kind of acceptance, a kind of, uh, yeah. I don't think it sounds silly at all. It's one of those main questions I'm fascinated to explore on this series. Initially, our sensitivities open us up to contact with a variety of entities, whether more classically alien or elemental or etheric. Then we discover there's some sketchy parts of this ecosystem. I may be exposing myself to danger. I don't want to assume this was your trajectory, JF, but did you end up in a place where you needed to use protective measures? to safeguard yourself, to make exploring viable. You're a practicing Catholic, and I'm interested in this intersection of your sensitivities to this kind of contact, your willingness to use whatever is in your toolbox from any tradition, whether a Tibetan maneuver with golden light or something from the Catholic wheelhouse. Were you regarded as a heretic? No. Because... That kind of flexibility is not always received warmly from the mainstream of Western traditions. So yeah. how were you received? Yeah, no, it's true. You're right. I was actually, I've, I've, it's been the opposite for me. Catholicism for me has been a source of, of support and co- confirmation about the weird. I, when I was young, when I, from the age of about six, I guess, or five or six to eight or nine, my babysitter was this old French Canadian lady. She was really nice. We called her Mammy. And she told us all kinds of stories about werewolves and the devil and demons and stuff like that. I just love those stories. I could have sat at her 
feet all day listening to these old stories. And she came from up north in Quebec and where Catholicism and the weird are inseparable. The ethos that she came from was, we talk about like coming to terms with the existence of non-human entities. Well, these were people who lived with immediate consciousness of non-human entities and everything they did, whether it was saints who were not human anymore or angels or demons or werewolves or, or sorcerers in the woods or whatever. This was just part of the landscape that she grew up in. And I, I don't know to what extent she actually believed this stuff. She certainly seemed to, and I certainly did when she told the stories. And she never once told me these were just stories. And once she kind of decided to tell us the particular story wasn't real when this other kid that she babysat um, had a freak out after she told one particularly harrowing story about a, a werewolf eating a chicken. This sounds so harrowing now, but <laughs> the, the, this kid did not like this story. But mm. so I've always, yeah, I, I grew up in the 80s. I remember when uh, uh, hearing stories about uh, weeping, you know, the weeping statues of the Virgin Mary, I remember my grandfather telling me a story that once his, his, a friend of his who was an atheist had decided to not eat the host during mass and he basically put it in his pocket and went out and when they're having cigarettes outside the church afterwards, he broke the host just to show everybody it was just a piece of bread and uh, it bled, supposedly. So that was what Catholicism was for me. Now, I'm aware that that's... I think that's actually common in Catholic countries. If you go to Spain or Italy or um, Austria, that Catholicism has has uh, mixed with its own, the, the folklore of these areas very, and of course in Latin America and in Africa, there's there's really not a great. Well, it hasn't been sanitized, perhaps in the way that it has been in North America, or at least in the United States. Yeah, I think that Catholicism in the United States has been uh, Protestantized very much by the travails of American history and by, you know, the, just the, the general drift of things in North America, it's turned Catholicism into something more like a Protestant religion. Whereas my experience of Catholicism is, I don't want to overplay this because there was a lot of xenophobia and a lot of fear of the supernatural. It's not like the supernatural was ever seen as a positive thing. But at least it was seen as real. It was seen as just part of daily life. I don't know. I don't know if that really. Yeah. It makes sense on a deeper inspection, Catholicism, especially in terms of the facets you're describing. It actually has a lot in common with Vajrayana Buddhism. Oh, yeah. That struck me so hard when I got into Vajrayana Buddhism and I started to read about it. Uh, I couldn't believe the parallels between, I found between the Vajrayana doctrines and the c- Catholic theology that I was interested in at the time, the three jewels, all that stuff. Like, I mean, a lot of that is kind of universal Buddhist stuff, but also on, on a, just the level of how tokens are used and saints as bodhisattvas are invoked and the way that, that the traditions, that they are first and foremost instruments for the believer to use in order to guard themselves against all kinds of to, in order to navigate this world. That's how I see it. And I, I love Vajrayana Buddhism precisely because it's like this crazy toolkit of like superpowers. You know, you've got all this stuff you can do to deal with different situations. And it's very 
Catholic in the small C sense of being just a big grab bag of all kinds of stuff that then a few theologians might try to like bring it all together into a system. But it is first and foremost, this, this big tent mm-hmm. with this crazy carnival going on inside, you know, like, yeah. Exactly. In the same sense that you were relating how Catholicism in each of its respective territories, whether Spain or South America, it carried forward and integrated the previous lineages in those areas. On a bad day, cannibalized. On a good day, integrated these traditions that existed for thousands of years before it. Yeah. Same thing with Vajrayana Buddhism, which really grabbed a hold of Bon in the area and made that one of the vital organs of the body of Vajrayana. Right. That being the long history of Catholicism, it's always been in relationship with the weird, with high strangeness, exotic liminal experiences, developing techniques in response to them. Mm. So I had sent you this note about the word weird, how it originally meant something more to do with fate, destiny, but as it has evolved, it has become about the odd, the strange. It seems fascinating to me that that would be the evolution of that word, from fate and destiny to the odd and strange. Mm -hmm. Is that coincidental? Can you comment if there's something to be said about Catholicism's long-term relationship with the evolution of that word? Okay, yeah. So the word weird, W-I, sorry, W-Y-R-D, the the Germanic or sort of Anglo-Saxon word, weird, old English word, uh, meant, as you say, fate. But usually fate not in the sense of causal fate, in the sense that like, oh, you went out and you caught a cold because you went out without your shoes and on and it was raining. I think the word weird at the time, even in like, if you look at Beowulf and texts like that, it always has a sense of the fate dispensed by the gods, right? The fate that comes from outside, the fate that somehow takes all these disparate streams of causal events in your life and brings them all together in a destiny, in a moment. Mm. At least that's my understanding. So if we look at it that way, then the the evolution of the word weird from W-Y-R-D to W-E-I-R-D, meaning the the odd, the strange, you can kind of see how they're just, these two ways of seeing the word are just basically different. They emphasize different aspects of something that I think is stable across time in terms of what the the word means. From, from what I've read, and I think some of this comes from Eric Davis's writings on that word, mm. the connotation, the odd or strange connotation comes around after Shakespeare wrote Macbeth with the Weird Sisters. And from what I could tell, I believe that, that Shakespeare kind of revived the word, which had been lost at that point in English, because the Scots still used it. And he called the three witches the Weird Sisters. And then, of course, the word was ambiguous enough to invite a direct connection between these witches and the weird. And that therefore weird became to connote the supernatural, the, the, the strange. But also, of course, the connection with the weird in the original sense of fate is there because the three, the three weird sisters in Macbeth are their avatars of the three fates, of the Norns, you know, from, uh, from Nordic mythology. So it seems to me that the word hasn't meant different things really. It just 
we just tend to emphasize different aspects of it. And of course, in a world that has given up on the idea of fate and destiny, mm-hmm. the, uh, a modern world that in its claims to its own disenchantment says that there is no such thing as some telos from the future that's affecting events now, some kind of thing we're working towards, some kind of eschaton in the future. Once we gave that up, all we're left with is weird means odd. But I think that it's odd precisely because it points at an underlying or implicit order that it, that it eludes our normal cognitive apparatus. That's precisely what makes it weird. So I think that the more you look into the weird, the more weird restores its original meaning that has something to do with fate. And of course, in the story I told about the bus and the UFO, everything you were bringing up about that story is telling us that there was some something fateful going on. And maybe that's the case with all instances of the weird. Maybe it's always a fateful event. For more on J.F. Martel, visit reclaimingart.com and also weirdstudies.com. That's spelled W-E-I-R-D. J.F.'s book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, is available on Amazon and many other online portals. What happened to Jim Sullivan? One of the great unsolved mysteries in the history of aliens and artists is that of Jim Sullivan. It's a dark chapter in the intersection of art and the paranormal. One that still haunts those who seek inspiration from a liminal muse. Jim Sullivan was a songwriter with a promising career, working alongside an impressive set of artists in California, including The Wrecking Crew, a famous group of musicians that backed Simon and Garfunkel, The Beach Boys, and Phil Spector. Sullivan mingled among a coterie of artists and scenesters around Hollywood. He counted Dennis Hopper among his friends and played a regular gig to packed crowds at The Raft in Malibu. Sullivan's debut album, UFO, was released in 1969, but by March of 1975, he'd languished in LA without success for too long. Sullivan decided to head to Nashville. He said goodbye to his family. The plan was for them to join him in Nashville soon. A day after he left, Sullivan called his wife Barb, telling her emphatically he was okay. She was confused. Why wouldn't he be okay? He'd only been gone 24 hours. Sullivan's response was strange. As his wife recounted to the New York Times years later, he had told her, quote, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. She replied, Jim, what's the matter? Is anything wrong? He said only, forget it. Forget I said anything. I'll call you from Nashville. He did not call from Nashville. He vanished forever leaving a few haunting clues still unresolved decades later. One, his gray Volkswagen bug was discovered abandoned in a remote area of Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Two, it was locked. Three, inside were Sullivan's 12-string guitar, his identification, and copies of his album, UFO. Those close to him say Sullivan was not suicidal. Some speculate he was murdered. Others suggest mental breakdown. But in a short documentary about Sullivan, his wife Barbara is open to the idea that perhaps Sullivan was taken by a UFO, remarking, quote, I think it'd be great if they did say, okay, it's time for him to come with us. 
I wouldn't be surprised at all. Hi, Stuart Davis here. If you like the podcast, or if you hate the podcast, the only reasonable response is to become a patron because counterintuition feels wrong. And that's how we know it's working. You're taking action. If you like it, you ensure its continuation. If you don't, you can send me a personal message making suggestions. <laughs> As an artist, I take those suggestions and personally turn them into a collage. I put that collage in a time capsule. And one day, maybe our children's children will open it and find themselves utterly unable to make sense of the creative amalgamation of feedback so randomly repatterned. Just go to stuartdavis.com, click on the Patreon button, and put a dollar sign on your strong emotions. Thank you for your support or opposition. Teach it to my mother to watch me on the playground. I had the habit of climbing up a trash mound Stripping for a crowd of rowdy adolescents And a parody of puberty and human evanescence Boiling up the love into poisonous glue Recruiting the kids like cannibals 